I will be sharing from Genesis 8. But first, Brittany's going to share from Gen- uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. She had a cool little insight that I think would be really encouraging for us. So Nehemiah chapter 3 is what she's going to share with us right now. So I was reading Nehemiah chapter 3 because it's um, all about the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. And um, it just felt so where we're at in the season right now. So I'm going to read all of Nehemiah 3 um, and just share a couple of my thoughts on it. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasena built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joedah, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gates of Yeshena. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haram, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabiniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram and Hashab, the son of Petha, Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halosheth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Machijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of kol ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him... Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Benai, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keliah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Keliah, 
Next to him, Ezer, the son of Joshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent of the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests of the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beyond beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Halal, the son of Azai, repaired opposite the buttress to the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king and the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parosh, and the temple service living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the protecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Almost done. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple, servants, and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chambers of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. I I just thought this is so where we're at right now of, of everybody can only get as far as the snow around them will allow them to get right now. Some people are still chipping away by their front doors and some people are able to go down the street and help neighbors. And, um, and some people are even able to get way out of their house and they've got the ability to drive, um, across town. And I think it's just so beautiful that, that with this, um, little bit, everybody's working as an individual, just where they can work along this wall. And yet the wall gets rebuilt, um, as a body, um, and it's just so beautiful that we can worship this way together. We can, we can restore our mountain this way together. Um, and just chipping away at whatever, whatever snow is in front of us for now. Um, and I'm so excited to worship alongside you guys soon, but as for now, I think it's, it's just great that we can be a body doing this teamwork, um, even just right where we're at. Um, and I love also in here, you have rulers that are, that are working alongside goldsmiths and jewelers. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter, um, importance level. It just matters that we're all doing this together right now. Um, because the work that's in front of us is the work that's most important. So thanks for being able to chip in at your home and, um, and thanks for being able to reach out to neighbors and help as well. We love you guys and we miss you. So thanks. Isn't that great? Um, that was really encouraging to me. Um, cause we're in a situation that we didn't really want to be in. And it's a little frustrating to have like chaos going around everyone. And like, we are literally just like, we haven't been able to even shovel, even shovel our cars out. Cause like we're cramped in this corner and 
Um, snow at the early stages of the storm when they were plowing, they just they shoveled all this snow piled up around our house. Like we have like mountain high berms around us, and it's just like um, we're like just waiting because there's like not humanly possible to shovel all that down. And um, and then in the midst of that, um, actually, so you guys can pray for our house because there's a main rafter in the center of the house that, um, developed a pretty severe crack, like not just like little cracks, but like, like, um, I heard it split and pop in the middle of the night at one point. So, um, um, and in the course of 24 hours, this thing went from like a really, like a crack that you can get, what would you say? Like, um, like a notebook into like, uh, to the point where you can now see daylight through the crack. Um, that was the status on it yesterday. That was just 24 hours later. So, um, we know it's like in pretty, it's in pretty bad shape, and all this moisture coming down right now is just going to be adding weight. So um, we evacuated our house, and I know a lot of people like actually have had their roofs collapse. So we're lucky that hasn't happened yet, and that we weren't in the house when anything happened. Um, but so we evacuated our house and walked um, down the highway to the Calvary Chapel Bible College, and so um, they've received us here, and they've been amazing. And uh, the way these students are weathering the storm is just so encouraging. Um, there's just people helping people here all over the place. We're all shoveling car after car. There, there are cars. When you walk up here or drove, like come up here, like you're used to when you drive up, you see all the empty parking spaces on one side. Well, when I, we walked up here, it was just huge, like hill after hill after hill, all the way up these parking spots. These are all cars abandoned by people in the community or student cars, just lumps and lumps of untouched cars. And so right now the endeavor is now that a plow has come through um, to clear out some of the driveway, now we're all working at just unburying car after car so that when they come back tomorrow, they can clear out where the cars were. Um, so it's been a, that's been a sort of our ministry right now is kind of giving back to the college that's been, um, willing to host us and, um, just ministering to students. And there's actually been some things that have happened where it's just been, it's been good to be here. And I think that our kids are giving life to some of the students, just kind of nice to have outs, like just different things happening when you're just getting cabin fever. So, uh, yeah, pray for the students here. Pray for the neighbors, of course, our dog, um, and pray for, um, just pray that our house holds up because who knows how bad it'll be if it does cave in. Um, anyways, uh, I don't say this at all so you guys can just start spreading pity for our situation. We're fine. We're totally taken care of. Um, but just pray the house holds up. And for everybody else who's in similar situations. Um, well, Brittany's insight on Nehemiah. It made me wonder, why did I not choose Nehemiah to teach from? It makes so much sense. Rebuilding after catastrophe. But instead... So sorry about that. Addy walked in and set Molly off. Um, uh, instead, I decided to go to Genesis 8. And here's why. While we were here, the first day we got here, um, uh, I sat in to listen to Justin Thomas, the president of the Bible College, share a chapel with the students from Genesis 8 because he felt like it was an appropriate text for the student body. And, um, and when he did that, I thought, oh, wow, this is cool. And as he was talking, I began seeing in the passage a totally different trail. So I'm not sharing with you what he shared. I'm sharing with you where the idea came from. But I'm sharing something totally different that I saw in it and thought it would be very fitting for our congregation to see this. So if you want to go to Genesis 8, you can. And um, let me pray. And by the way, this, don't think that this is going to be a, a Brandon 40-minute special, 60-minute special. Um 
I hope not, because I know what it's like watching things on a screen. Uh, you got to be doing the dishes or something. It's hard to just sit there and watch it, right? So um, I'm going to see, hopefully. Look, I got one sheet of things to say, so we should be good. <laughs> My wife might have just been causing doubt in her mind. Just, I'm just kidding. Like when God said to Sarah, why'd you laugh? <laughs> All right. Uh, Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind. That word wind is ruach. It's the same word used that refers to the spirit moving over the waters in Genesis 1, verse 2. So we have actually the same picture, a world covered in water, the ruach moving over it. Um, So God sent a wind. He sent the ruach to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Just like day three of creation, the waters receded and the the dry land peaked up. Verse two, the foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed because those were opened to bring the flood. Now they're closed and the rain from heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So there's this progression, right? The storm came as catastrophic, and now it's receding gradually. Then in verse 6, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark. Just literary point, I appreciate these things, point out to you. Here we see the windows of the heavens being closed, but now the windows of the ark are opened. So when life closes windows on us, we can open windows in other places. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove had no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. So the raven goes out, doesn't come back. Dove goes out and comes back. Um, For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, the dove, and brought her into the ark with him. And waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Catastrophe feels like splintering. Catastrophe feels like splintering. It's like we have this wholeness, this life that we set up, uh, things that we're used to being solid and being reliable, just whatever normal life is, it's, it's there. But when catastrophe comes, it splinters through this and shards of those splinters can go out and things are in pieces. No longer is there a whole, no longer things together, things don't have order or sense. Catastrophe feels like a splintering where things around you are just falling apart. What we see in the midst of this catastrophe is some pretty cool things from this text in Genesis that can be easily overlooked if we don't have someone pointing out or guiding us through this text. So in the midst of catastrophe, catastrophe, I want to point out four insights here. 
two things that we see about God and catastrophe, and then two things that we see for us and catastrophe. So the first is that even in catastrophe, there is order. It doesn't feel like it, but even in catastrophe, there is order. So I'm going to point out some verses before the verses we read, because I want to show you that there's this literary structure in the flood story that shows complete order from beginning to end of the flood. It seems like chaos, but if you look carefully, there's a Jewish literary form known as a chiastic structure, which is weaved throughout the story. So the way a chiastic structure works is you have a, it's like bookends. You have event A and event A at the end, and they mirror each other because they're the same event, just retold. And then you have um, inside that bookend, you have event B and event B. And then in the middle, you have event C and event C. And then sandwiched in between all this is the pivotal moment. So I want to show you this order, this structure in the midst of catastrophe, and that will then lead us to the second important theme about God and catastrophe, okay? So if we look at the beginning of the flood, we see in verse 4 of chapter 7, that's chapter 7, verse 4, God says, in seven days I will send rain on the earth. And then we see in verse 10 that Noah and his family go into the ark, and then in verse 10, after seven days, the waters of the flood came up on the earth. So, they go into the ark, seven days pass, now the flood has begun. So, the bookend, outer bookend is seven days, okay? So remember, seven days, we're going to end this structure with seven days. The next layer of the structure is 40 days. So, if we look at... Verse 17, chapter 7, verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed over everything. So now, seven days to wait. Now the flood is coming and it's it's pouring down for 40 days. Okay, so seven days, 40 days, third layer. We have 150 days. Um, So... We see in the last verse of chapter 7, verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So, 40 days of flooding, the flooding stops, and the waters cover everything for 150 days. Okay. Now, we look at chapter 8. Those are our three layers. Now, we're going to see those three layers mirrored on the back end, okay? So, now in chapter 8, verse 3, we read, as we did read, And the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, there you go, 150 days is mirrored by 150 days, the waters had abated. So the waters prevailed for 150 days. Now for 150 days, they are receding. Okay? Now we come to 40 days again in verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6. At the end of 40 days... So the waters recede for 150 days, the ark rests on Mount Ararat, and then Moses waits 40 days, and now he opens the window and sends out the birds. So we have 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, and now our last number to round off the whole chiasm, we have another 7. This comes in verse 10. He waited another 7 days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. But this time... This time the dove came back with the olive branch. 
and the olive branch was significant because it said new life is out there. Catastrophe is struck, but there's, it's not the end of everything. New life is budding and the dove was bearing witness to the new life. So in the midst of this catastrophe, we have structure and God is bringing what seems like it will end the world forward in a plan and a purpose so that in the, at the end result of this, it's not the end of the world. It's the beginning of a new world. And eventually the dove doesn't come back because there's plenty of new world to live in. Isn't that cool? Well, the turning point of this chiasm, because we have 740, 150, 150, 47, the, the middle between those 250 days, an important movement from God happens, which turns the story. So this is the second thing that we learn about God. God has order in catastrophe, but the second thing is that God remembers us in catastrophe. God remembers us in catastrophe. This is chapter 8, verse 1. But God, that's, that's what turns this whole story from catastrophe now to new creation. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and livestock that were with him in the ark. When we say that God remembered, we don't mean that he forgot Noah and, oh, my goodness, angels, we forgot Noah. Let's go visit him now. Um, That's not what remember means. Remember is a phrase you'll find in the Old Testament, which means something more like God is about to act. When we read that God remembers something, it means that he hadn't neglected it. It's simply that while we were waiting, he's now decided this is the time to act. God is about to fulfill his plan for Noah. That's what it means he remembered. God is about to fulfill his plan for Noah. Some examples of this in scripture is um, when Rachel's crying out for, um, she's barren, she's crying out to become pregnant. Um, It then says, God remembered her barrenness and then she conceived. Um, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, the Israelites cry out to God in their slavery. It says, God remembered them and heard them. And then the very next chapter, we see a deliverer in Moses coming. Um, 1 Samuel 1, verse 19, it's the same thing with Hannah crying out uh, that she would have a child. It said, God remembered her, and right there in that verse, she conceived. So when God remembers, things are happening. It means he's now enacting his plan. Um, so he remembers and God is, he remembers us. He, he's going to bring all of this. There's that turning point that, but God remembered and the catastrophe is going to go toward new creation. So as we think of that, um, um, let's look at the two um, things that we, we can learn from catastrophe, what it does for us. Uh, first is that catastrophe renews our worship. Catastrophe renews our worship. Uh, In 8 verse 20, as Noah finally comes off the ark, we see that he builds an altar to the Lord. And it says that God smelled it and it was a sweet aroma. And he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I will never strike down every living creature. We see that Moses comes off the ark and the first thing he does is he holds a worship service. The family comes off the ark. Who knows if the animals are involved in that? Well, some animals are involved in sacrifice. Um, he builds an ark. Yes, so all creations there are involved, and the humans are there, and um, they worship God. Catastrophe should have, if we remember, if we realize that God orders, 
brings order to catastrophe and that he remembers us, he's going to do a new work in us, then that should elicit from us a response of worship, a renewed sense of worship. And this is why I don't think it's silly that we're trying to do a little gathering online like this. We need to pour out our worship and our lives to God in these times. And then second, after we have a renewal of worship, we see that there is a renewal of the commission to God's people for all the earth. So you see in chapter 9, verse 1, after Noah worships, God says this, 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those are enormous words. Now, yes, on one hand, literally he's saying, yeah, go and have babies and fill the earth. But this becomes a theme throughout scripture. God tells Adam and Eve to do this in Genesis 1 verse 28. You are to have dominion over the earth, to multiply, fill the earth, and make it fruitful. You're to do good in the world. Part of that is having babies, yes. Um, But then Jesus picks this up. The same concept of this commission of God sending his human people into the world to represent him to all creation. Jesus picks this up and says, all authority at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. It's the same idea of moving outward and being fruitful. But now the Christian vision of being fruitful and multiplying is, yeah, we should have babies, but it's that we should be making new sons and daughters of the faith by teaching what he's taught us to do and by baptizing them into the faith. Um, So we see a renewal of worship leads to a renewal of our commission, our purpose in life. And so if we understand That in the splintering of catastrophe, that God upholds order, that God will remember us and begin his new work, if we respond to this with worship, then we will see the possibility of our commission to go and rebuild wherever we can. And look, sometimes that's not quite feasible. We we don't have a lot of strength or resources or we're trapped or we're in a different situation. We don't necessarily can get out there and make a new creation. I don't know that that's what God wants all of us to be doing anyways. For some of us right now, you need to hear that God's remaking something in you. That you need to let go of the chaos you're holding on to and just trust. Let him bring the olive branch to you. Know the ark in whom you rest in and on. As Peter in the New Testament will reference, this flood is like our baptism. He doesn't say this explicitly, but heavily implies, because we're baptized into Christ, that the ark is Christ. That we are now sheltered in him. He's carrying us through the storms and through the hardship and through the catastrophe, and we can rest there. He has olive branches budding everywhere. And as soon as we're able to, we can tap in to cultivating this new work that he's doing. We have to see that he's ordered it, that he's remembering and making something new, that we must worship him through this, and then seek the ways that he wants to use us and send us. We don't have to make it more complicated than that. Now, one admonition before we close is that there were two birds that were sent out of the ark. One was a raven and one was a dove. The raven never came back. It went out and it didn't come back. Not because there was lots of new creation out there. The the raven never came back because there was lots of dead old creation out there. Ravens are, you know how they get into our trash, right? They eat whatever they find in our neighborhoods. Um, Ravens would have had no problem eating the carnage that the flood left. That's why the raven didn't come back. 
But the dove had eyes on a better world. And the dove didn't find it in the carnage. The dove found it in Christ, in the ark. And the dove kept going out to find where's the hope, where's the new life. The dove wasn't focusing on the death and the catastrophe. The raven did that. And the raven found no home in Christ. But the dove was looking for the new life, the work of God, and it was engaged in that. And it was bringing it to others so that they would have hope. We're not stuck on this ark forever. There's a new world out there. So let's set our eyes in the right place. If we are like the raven, we're going to focus on the catastrophe, and we may never come back from focusing on catastrophe. Unfortunately, I fear that COVID did that to some people, and that we've been seeing nothing but catastrophe ever since. Yes, there's lots of catastrophe. It hasn't ended. But where are our eyes? As we soar through life, what are we focusing on? Let's be doves. Let's bring peace. Let's bring olive branches. Let's show the hope of the world to come because this world sure isn't it.